Hi, everyone. First off, there are one or two words in this episode that you might not want kids hearing. Beyond that, I'd like to say we hope you've enjoyed the sneak preview in the first episode of our season. If you have liked what you've heard so far, can we ask a favor of you up front? Could you write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? It helps us move up the ranking system and we can get seen by more people on the site. And while you're at it, like us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is at AMLG Podcast. If you have any critiques, we're open to those too. We always want to improve, so send us an email. You can reach us at Gowen, that's my last name, G-O-W-E-N, Gowen at a millionlittlegods.com. Okay, on to the show. We record this podcast in my office at the university. There's a side of the room that looks academic. It's got bookshelves and my desk with trays filled with tests and essays and applications for recognition of prior studies. And there are two monitors, because I'm not messing around, and a potted red anthurium plant. The other side of the room is devoted exclusively to the podcast. There's a whiteboard on the wall with production notes and hangers laden with XLR cables and splitters and jacks. We use a soundproof collapsible booth that was made for recording phonological data by one of the linguists in our department. As you can imagine, I spend a lot of time in this room. So the entire humanities division of the university has been temporarily uprooted from the main campus, which is in Famella Park, the centerpiece of the Rotenbaum quarter of Eimsbüttel here in Hamburg. It's a lovely part of the city, although much of that beauty comes from the open courtyards and grass commons that, along with the little metal Stolpersteine, divided among the cobblestones in front of the neoclassical brownstone homes, engraved with the names of deported and executed former residents, are reminders that Rotenbaum was once the center of Jewish life in Hamburg, before the synagogue on Bornplatz was destroyed in the Nazi November pogrom 80 years ago last week. The building we're supposed to be in, the Philosophentorm, is a 52-meter utilitarian monolith built in 1963 at the tail end of the Social Democrats' period of reconstruction after the war. That building was in disrepair and had safety issues, so we've been dislocated for the next three to five years to City Nord, which is one of those mid-century modern dreams of what a well-planned city should look like. It's a place just waiting to be 99 PI'd, so Roman, if you're listening. Anyhow, my office window looks out on the site of what was once the regional post office administration. That building was this imposing utterance of angles and it was considered a classic example of brutalism. If you want to picture it, imagine that an architect in the 70s had a fever dream about a Mayan pyramid in Guatemala and use that image to design a dinner theater complex at Epcot Center where you can eat giant fried ostrich legs and watch robot gladiators fight. And then imagine that it's mustard colored. If that doesn't help, you can actually see it. Just watch the film adaptation of the John le Carre novel A Most Wanted Man from four years ago. The movie was Philip Seymour Hoffman's last starring role. It's set in Hamburg and they filmed all of Hoffman's office scenes in and around the old post-admin building. So anyhow, the building was in this state of disrepair, and despite it being under historical preservation, the owners decided just to level it. Now all I see from my office is sand. Sand sculpted into perfectly level, flat mounds that will serve as the foundation for the new office complex to be built in place of the old post building. 
but they didn't have to transport sand onto the site. Every grain of sand in those mounds was once a composite part of a rock or a piece of rubble, pulverized when they ran it through a rock crusher. And every rock or piece of rubble had once been a composite part of a larger stone or boulder, busted to pieces by the crooked teeth of a spinning rock grinder. And each of those large stones or boulders had been knocked from the post building by a wrecking ball. But here's the thing. Over the past year, sometimes I would sit and stare, distracted from my work by the tableau vivant outside my window. And for all the busyness of the scene, from one hour to the next, or one day to the next, or one week to the next, nothing seemed to change. I remember the wrecking ball. From up close, it was as massive as three cars stacked atop one another. But through the window, it looked like a heavy ball bearing you could hold in your hand. The crane would awkwardly swing it back and forth, trying to build up some kind of momentum, and then... It would hardly seem to do any damage at all. Eventually, there were only boulders. And eventually, there was only rubble. And then only sand. And then there were mounds. When did each of those forms appear or disappear? At what swing of the wrecking ball did the old post-administration building cease to be there? At what rotation of the grinder was the boulder no longer there? Under what tread did the dirt get flattened into a foundation? Where did those things come from? Where did they go? This is a million little gods. Ben Federson. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. So we last time we left off asking how do we know what makes a thing a thing? Mm -hmm. But we were talking about race. Yeah. Like race is that a thing? That's right. Yeah. But then we switched to wondering um, what makes anything a thing. Right. And I guess the traditionally lazy way of addressing that question is consulting the dictionary. So let's a, do that. That's not a bad, really? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. In fact, you know what? I've got one better, we, even better than the dictionary. Hang on a second. Hi, Peter, can you hear me? I can indeed. Can you hear oh, me? Perfect. This is working. Ha -ha. I've wrapped my fair share of students' metaphorical knuckles in my day for starting essays with some variation on the hackneyed phrase, according to Meriwether McGillicuddy's dictionary, tartan is a twee person's word for plaid, so I ought to know better. 
I'm going to violate my own prohibition, then I'm going to do it upright. First of all, I can't be consulting some fly-by-night mail-order operation run out of some P.O. box in New Mexico. I'm consulting the OMSED, the Oxford Mother Scratchin' Dictionary. And secondly, I'm not speaking to some postage stamp looking editorial assistant scrub. I'm speaking to Peter Gilliver, the associate editor who wrote and published the authorized history of the OED and who personally updated the entry on Thing eight years ago. Um, okay, so I have my first question here. Um, so one of the primary tasks of a lexicographer is to take words as, you know, distinct units and then uh, go out as it were, <laughs> into the world and find different senses in which each word is used. And then each of those senses or definitions, if it's distinct enough to merit it, um, gets its own lexical entry. And um, the analogy I like to use is lepidoptery. And that's associative on my part, because I think of like Vladimir Nabokov, who was a collector of both words and mine, uh, butterflies rather. But lepidopterists collect their species out in the world and then they determine that it's a distinct kind of subspecies or, you know, small and distinct version of a butterfly. And then they euthanize it and then they pin it on a cork board and um, they see how good it is. Is that, um, is that a decent analogy to lexicography? Uh, like most analogies, I think it's not quite perfect, but it's a good one. Uh, in fact, the metaphor of natural history was used very early on in the history of the OED. Um, people looking at the evolution of language and and drawing analogies with the evolution of species. Uh, so we do indeed uh, collect evidence uh, for the use of a word and pin it on our cork boards and try to uh, classify it. And this is where the analogy breaks down. Uh, species suggests real distinctness of one item from another. In fact, we know that uh, a word is a word and it has many different meanings and some of them kind of co-occur. So you lay out the territory, you lay out all of your examples of word and you think, well, these ones here clearly have, they, they congregate around this sort of node of meaning and this group of um, examples of the same word congregate around this sort of node of meaning. Um, but there may be some where you can't really say it's one or the other. I'm not enough of a biologist to know how much of a, an, an analog there is to that in, um, uh, in natural history. But I think the boundaries between species are rather different in that you can always say, well, this is a distinct species because they can't interbreed. Uh, there isn't a direct equivalent to that with words. Peter's primary directive at the OED is to update the entries for words that already exist. That's what eventually led him to a word so pervasive, with a meaning so broad, that any definition feels at least a little bit tautological. But as we noted in episode one, once you take a close look at it, the obviousness of what thing means sort of slips away. Well, my main job is to revise the entries in the dictionary that are there already, and uh, I revised the entry for Thing some years ago. Well, let's go on a sidetrack for a moment. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, tell me about um, the process uh, by which you've you've decided to recreate 
um, some of the entries, some of the older entries. Um, what is what are the what are the working assumptions and the methods that you use to um, revise older entries? What what things do you say to yourself about um, older entries that uh, that um, necessitates their being redone? Well, we have to revise every entry in the dictionary, mm-hmm. um, which I can explain in minutes. But the, the the working assumption is the biggest working assumption would be if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, if the analysis that our predecessors made of the historical, and that's a very important word here, of the historical development of the different meanings of the word uh, was sound and has been borne out by the further evidence that's accumulated or that we've gone out and looked for, then why would we make fundamental changes to our account of the historical development of the different meanings of the word? Um, So toilet is a good example because toilet originally in English meant a piece of cloth um, and then came to mean, I love this example because it's one of the most extreme cases of semantic shift Mm. that I know of, Uh, a piece of cloth which then became uh, a piece of cloth covering a dressing table and then it became used to mean the dressing table itself, then it became the things you do at that dressing table, as in a woman being at her toilet, Mm -hmm. making herself look pretty. And then it became a word for the room where such things are done. And then by a process of um, euphemism, it became, well, other things go on in that room. Let's call it a toilet when it's actually a place where you wash yourself. Let's call it a toilet when, well, you know, other things go on and people are euphemistic. Um, and so it became a word for a place where you defecate <laughs> and eventually a word for the, for the um, appliance itself. Uh-huh. Um, that's a long way from a piece of cloth. Um, Although and it still ends with a piece of cloth. I'm sorry to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've, brought the, I've really brought the conversation to a new... Well, you, you started it, but okay. <laughs> Let's get down to thing, the word thing. Um, And uh, I mean, this is as old as words can be in the English language, I suppose. I mean, it's... um, Tested uh, back to old English, yeah. Yeah, and and some of them, the oldest versions of English, I think that you... you, Tell me me for a moment, uh, when when you're using old English in the um, historical record, I think I looked at how you define that. There are... There are three levels of Old English that you use, and, the, and they they are very long spans. Um, so that the oldest is between nine hundred. Is that right? Am I do I have my numbers right? Is it's before nine hundred or something like that? Uh, I don't have it in front of me because um, I don't have to think terribly hard about this. We yeah, have, of we have Old English specialists <laughs> oh, yeah. to, come, to cover this period, but we date them in these broad spans because, for a very high proportion of the documentation. Um, what we're actually, the date of what we're actually looking at um, is going to be uh, very hard to determine, let alone the date when the thing was actually, when the text in question was actually composed. So you Mm. might be looking at a later copy. So we have to have broad um, date ranges Mm -hmm. rather than assigning a a quotation to a specific date. Mm. But of course, thing reaches as far back as it possibly can in some of its senses um, and in others less so. Um, the, the one that is, if, if I were to walk up to a person, if I decided I was going to do some kind of Vox Populi recording here and I then just went out to the street and 
Okay, I'm in Germany, so I'd have to go to an English-speaking part of the world. Although everyone speaks English. Um, oh, but days. you see, I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? The difference between Ding and Zacher. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely different. <laughs> yeah, very, very different. Um, although sometimes they they seem to slide back into each other in certain ways. But yeah, Zacher and Ding are are very and Gegenstand. They can also, you know, that their German uh, tends to have other words for these things. I, I suppose English does too, but um, but we we call upon thing I think a little more commonly than Germans would call upon ding in in any case. But the, the common family, the the kind of Proto-Germanic family of languages, must have had some variation on this particular word. I'm, I'm I was struck by that that one of the earliest instances of the word was like a council of some kind. Uh, yes, a court. A court, uh, yeah, or a meeting or a deliberative assembly. Yeah, um, it's it, we really have no, there's no element of that in any of our uh, current sense of the word, and and um, I don't even quite understand. <laughs> it's, it's well, kind of I'm, strange. I'm I'm no Germanist, uh, and nor am I a member of our etymology team. But looking mm. at our etymology for the word thing, uh, we often list um, parallels in other languages, and I see there is a discussion of the German word ding, and and it gives a list of the meanings that that word either has or has had. Mm-hmm. And it says assembly, meeting, um, as well as things like entity, affair. Uh, huh. So at some point, whether currently or not, I don't know, ding in German has meant the same as our, as our earliest meaning in English. Fascinating. Um, but the, the I think the oldest instance is the one that, that I would find if I just asked someone on the street, which is, I think they would have a a very hard time articulating what they mean, but they would say something to the effect of, yeah, that's just some individual entity. Sure. <laughs> if, if they were lucky, they might hit on the word entity. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about thing is, is, is exactly, um, um, it's one of those words that's very hard to avoid. Yeah. Did you catch what Peter just said there? The thing about thing is that it's very difficult to avoid. I don't know if he even said that on purpose. But try it for yourself, to find thing for me without resorting to using the word. Even other words like entity sort of beg the question of what a thing is. Maybe that's because it's self-evident? It sure doesn't feel that way. It's more like Eurydice halfway back from the underworld. You know it's there, or you think you do, but as soon as you turn to look at it, it's gone. I don't know about you, but that makes me uncomfortable. Which definition for you is the is the the main body of of thing? Which definition for you is the central definition of the word that's that seems to be the one that all others, at least in, as it is used today, refer to? You know, this is a question that I never have to ask myself. Okay, um, because as a historical lexicographer. I'm looking at the whole history of the word. So um, I begin at the beginning and I work, work through. Um, if you're writing a dictionary of current English, mm-hmm. um, the usual convention, if you're listing the different meanings of a word, is to place the most common meaning first, um, whereas we place the oldest meaning first because mm-hmm. it's historical. Um, and deciding on which is the most common meaning is really hard. Um, I don't know what, well, I know there is a range of tools that you can 
bring to bear on this, you know, statistical corpus analysis and so on. But it's really difficult. Um, so you're going to get an answer from me um, as if I was that vox pop person. Mm-hmm. I think if you said, what is a thing to me, um, I would probably say entity. It's a thing that has existence. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I don't think if you said the word thing to me, I would immediately think about whether it has existence or not. Um, it, it's jolly hard, isn't it? Um, it is. Uh, an object, but then what is an object? Um, because I would, the, the other meanings would come crowding in. Because if you said, uh, well, what's a thing? And I would sort of say, well, all, the, all these things are, you know, if you look around me, I can point to lots of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, I mean an object, uh, a separate, that which I can pick up and uh, or point to. But then crowding in on my mind, I would think about the things that have no physical existence. Um, so uh, humanity is a thing, goodness is a thing, love is a thing, um, but so is mist, so is that pebble. Um, so I'm not really giving you a definition. That's, no, it's very all. hard to define. It's I'm giving you examples. And I think that's probably what most people would do with thing. Oh, it's it's really quite difficult. It's really hard. Um, so let's. I think this is the last thing I will ask you. Um, so, <laughs> once again, circularity just came in. Um, I wonder what instance of thing that was that I just used. Uh, the last thing I will ask you. Huh. Uh, oh, I hope we've got that one covered somewhere in the entry. I'm just turning the pages of it. Um, idea. Yeah, that which is that which is stated or expressed in speech writing. Sense five a a saying, an utterance, an expression, uh-huh. or is it? Or is it that which is thought, an idea, a notion, which is 5B? Mm. Um, yes, I think it's that. So looking at the examples under 5B, um, putting things in the poor girl's head, mm-hmm. uh, Mary sat and thought hard things about Dora. Um, that was what you just asked me. I think you that's what I just asked you. Yeah, something, something like that. <laughs> oh gosh! Okay, so. <laughs> you can see how hard our job is. Yeah, indeed. I don't. I don't envy you your job. Yeah, um, it's a great job. No, actually, I do envy you your job. I would do it in a heartbeat if I could. Um, okay, so the last thing I will ask about is this newest definition of the word, um, which, as you said, was work began in 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 two thousand sixteen, and was then it was it was published in two thousand seventeen. Um, and that sense is the one we use when we ask ourselves something like what it sounds like in our title, although I think our title is um, semiotically playful in that it doesn't, the way we're using the word, is that a thing? Namely, race, is that a thing? Thing, the word thing in that sentence doesn't mean what it does in this newest sense, as you've pointed out. Um, so tell me about that new sense of the word. So um, I, I'm not sure who brought it first to our attention, but we noticed it. Well, we put it on our list of things to watch a few years ago, and one of my colleagues, Danica Salazar, uh, was given the the new sense to work on, and uh, put together a paragraph of the quotations that could be found readily. Uh, um, and I think her first example began with um, something from uh, the scripts of a of a TV TV program. Mm-hmm. Um, which, as you can imagine, is rather less straightforward bibliographically than uh, a quotation from a book or a quotation from a magazine or a newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, so citing um, other things. We can cite anything in the OED, any piece of documentation, as long as it can be re- 
reliably dated. So we use Usenet news groups. We've used um, transcripts of dated pieces of newsreel footage. Um, we can use any. We can uh, gravestones. Um, <laughs> gravestones. Anything. Yeah. Um, I think in the first edition of the OED, aged in the sense of here lies so and so who died aged. 78 ah, yeah. years. Um, our earliest example at one point was was transcribed from a tombstone. Uh, so as long as it's a, if it's a document in any sense, and if it can be dated, then we can cite it. But some kinds of document are easier to cite than others. And uh, so Danica sent off this quotation, which was her earliest example, to uh, one of our bibliographical colleagues. Uh, and Lynn looked at this and said, I know that expression. I'm sure I saw it in the West Wing. And um, so some dedicated person, um, I, I don't know whether um, the scripts of the West Wing were available online at this stage, or whether uh, somebody had to watch the whole of a box set. But, uh, oh, God. So well, not that that's bad. I enjoy the West Wing, but my goodness, that's dedication. <laughs> well, and it comes with this job. Um, and so uh, Danica's example was from the first decade of the 21st century. Um, but uh, Lynn managed to track down an example from episode five of the second series of The West Wing, um, and it was transcribed from the program, and it says, did you know leaf peeping was a thing? Um, so I love that because it's, it's dedication on our part um, plus dedication on the part of the West Wing enthusiasts out there who provide transcripts. Um, and so we now have this really remarkably young new development, uh, remarkably recent uh, new addition to such an old word. Um, and we haven't traced it back before the year 2000, which is that, uh, that episode of, of the West Wing. Um, and so did you know leaf peeping was a thing? Or um, uh, is that even a thing? Is what people say, you know, smartphones are going to be a thing. Well, they are now. Um, where does that come from? Um, because of course everybody knows the word thing. So, which of the many existing senses of thing are they really using? And I don't know. It go strikes ahead, me as similar to the idea of when one when one says, um, "Boy, that was really a thing. Uh, that was quite a thing." Um, I think that I think quite a thing with the with the modifier quite attached to it. I, I'm I'm pretty certain I've heard that. Yep. Preceding 2000. Um, uh, and, and if you look at sense 4b in the OED, uh, colloquial, so the fact that it's marked in the OED with that register is suggestive because, because the new sense is definitely colloquial. Um, and so 4b is defined as a significant, notable, or sensational circumstance. And so you have things like 1863. Oh, what a thing for me, Arthur, that you are grown up and a man and able to do what is right in such a dreadful difficulty as this. Um, or in the same paragraph of illustrative quotations, more recently, 19, the most recent example of 1993, the TV was making a thing of it, interviewing people, everyone they could find and calling it neo-Nazism. I think that this newest definition must call upon that definition in some way. I think it been, grew out of that. Yeah. And, you, and you get, and very, very commonly, you get the expression, don't make a thing of it. You know, don't, yeah. don't make, so don't make a, a, a sensation um, but but the new sense is different because there's not there's not that sense of of, of impressiveness or sensationalness mm -hmm. about it. It, it. You're merely saying if you say did you know leaf people was a thing, you're merely saying 
it's a recognized phenomenon. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, and there's a difference between the fact that something is recognized and established and the fact that something is impressive or sensational. There's been a, a more sort of, I don't know, neutralization mm -hmm. uh, of the sense. But I think you're probably right that it's that kind of, um, as in it's quite a thing, what a thing it is for me, which we've mm -hmm. just been talking about. That seems to me to be where it's come from. But it probably drew on other senses as well. That's the thing about late developments in the history of a word. It's got uh, the new, the new sense, the new youngster sense has got so much to draw on. It may mm -hmm. have come from any, anywhere. Okay, well then, I'll, I'll just leave it at that, Peter. I think we, we've we've had our interview. Great. Thank you so much. Oh, it was a pleasure. It, it was is, a pleasure. It's, it's always made interesting to be made to think about some of the things that we just do all the mm. time. It's your thing. Do what you want to do. Uh, I actually, I sort of ran this by my brother. Yeah. And I asked him, when do you think that, People is started, that a thing started being used with that sense of thing in that, in that way? Yeah, is this kind of emergent phenomenon? Is that something that people are talking about Right, now? Oh, yeah. is that something people are talking about? Is that, you know. And, yeah. Is that in the air? Is that and and he, he said, just off the top of his head, oh, I think it was probably around 2000. Wow. So he was like dead on. Damn, wow, <laughs> he nailed it. Yeah, and I mean, I mean nail it, nail it. Was it, I mean, it, I guess it would have been right around two thousand. Yeah, and this is the problem of like the the story that Shakespeare invented like two hundred words or something. But it's the first usage that we can find. But he can't have invented these words because he would have expected his audience to at least have some idea what he was talking about when he used them. Mm. So he must have heard them used somewhere else. And I think with Aaron Sorkin, it's probably the same way. There's no way he invented, is that a thing? But it probably didn't occur too much before that point, right? Or it would have been recorded somewhere else first. Mm -hmm. um, and... Actually, my mom, she was also, she said, well, does that come from, like, do your thing, and it's your thing? Um, I mean... Like in the that old, yeah. what is it, 70s song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's your, it's your thing, thing, do what, what you want to do, do, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's definitely connected to that, mm. because, right, is that a thing? Is that a thing that people do? Is is that someone's thing? Yeah. Like, um... I mean, people say it's not my kind of thing. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that sense of thing, definitely. Or like, what's your thing? Like, yeah. oh, artisanal butter churning is yeah, my thing. <laughs> like, what, is that a thing? Really? Did you, that's a thing that someone does? Did you see there was an Onion article just recently that was uh, that said um, local, <laughs> local men nearly pulled into artisanal home mustard making and uh, in, 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 like he just, just survived getting pulled into the artisanal home mustard making movement. By you know turning off the web page he was reading, I thought it was I thought it was funny. Okay, never mind. It's all about delivery, I think. <laughs> <laughs> all right, fine. I don't work for the Onion, and I never will. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I don't. No, 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 no. Don't let your dreams be dreams. But <laughs> section two of the OED entry on thing contains all of the senses that fall under the general definition an entity of any kind. Sense 8. 
that which exists individually, in the most general sense, in fact or in idea, that which is or may be in any way an object of perception, knowledge, or thought, an entity, a being, including persons in contexts where personality is not significant. But here's the thing. How distant is the new definition of thing from those in section 2? The new one is sense 17, colloquial, originally from the U.S., a genuine phenomenon, established practice, or discernible trend, often in questions conveying surprise or incredulity, as in, is that even a thing? Or as an assertion, especially responding to or preempting skepticism, as in, it's a thing. How certain are you that the shirt you're wearing, the last Lego block you stepped on, the coffee cup with the seal of your alma mater on it, how certain are you that those things exist individually and aren't simply genuine phenomena, established practices, or discernible trends? Are they really real kinds of things? In two weeks, we'll speak to somebody who might shed some light on that. In episode three, Kinds. A Million Little Gods is produced at the University of Hamburg. Writing and production are by me and Ben Fetterson. Our student producers are Pat Nels, Julia Appa, Maren Kristoff, Leonie Bauer, and Anna Pechich. You can find us online at amillionlittlegods.com. Our Twitter feed is at AMLG Podcast. And we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash a million little gods. Here are some things. Homemade cranberry sauce. Sage and cornbread dressing. Chess pie. The Thanksgiving playlist I've been compiling for the past 10 years. This tune, Short Trip Home. The way my son's mouth forms dimples when he smiles over his head full of grown-up teeth. The way my daughter smells when she wakes up. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.